तस्मै श्री गुरुवे नमः अजनोलंबित भुजो कनका बधतो संकीर्तनाय कपितरो कमलाय तक्षो विश्वंबरो द्विजबरो युगधर्म पालो वंदे जगत प्रिय करो करुणाभूतारो वंदे श्री कृष्ण चैतन्य नित्यानंद सोरितो गोरदाहे पुष्पवंतो चित्रो संदोतमुनो देयम सदा परिबाबनम विष्टदोहम तेतस्पदम शिवबरिंचिनुत्तम शरण्यम वृत्यार्थिहम पनतपाल प्रवद्धिपोतम बंदे महापुरुषते चरणारविंदम चक्रासुदुष्टाजसुरेप्सित राजलक्ष्मी धार्मिष्टार्य वचसयरगदारम्यम मायाम्रिगम दैतैप्सितमं बधावद वंदे महापुरुषते चरणारविंदम वंदे महापुरुषते चरणारविंदम हे कृष्णा करुणा सिंधु दीनबंधु जगतपते गोपीशा गोपीका कंत आरागंत नमोस्तुते तप्त कंचन गुरांगी राधे वृंदावनेश्वरी पुष्पभामि सुते देवी प्रणामामि हरि प्रिय श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय कोर भक्त वृंद की जय गोविंद प्रेमानंदे बोलो प्रीवी थैंक यू फॉर कमिंग so I'd like to speak a little bit on the nature of Srimad Bhagavatam. I'll be here for a couple of days, and then I'm going to Finland and Poland, and I'll continue that uh, discussion. So a word, I think, uh, is in order to begin with, if we are to speak about a particular book, such as Srimad Bhagavatam, which falls in the context of the sacred literature of India, a word about revelation and its uh, welcome significance because I think the concept is often misunderstood and texts like the Bhagavad are retired to a dusty old shelf for old, old books that no longer have any, uh, not particularly relevant to modern times. So, with regard to Revelation, of course, here we're speaking about the great body of revealed works as they are conceived of the East. This would be the earliest form of Revelation known to and celebrated in humanity as opposed to the Revelation of the West, if you will, as it's conceived in uh, Christianity and other Abrahamic religions. So the Upanishads, then they date back a long time, and this is the earliest body of literature that is considered to be sacred or a form of revelation and outreach, if you will, of from the whole to the, to the parts to make a connection between the two to bridge the gap between the two. 
there's an interesting correspondence as well in the development of that thought, the digesting of that thought, an interesting parallel between that which took place in further west in the Judaic Christian tradition where we have, for example, the Bible as, uh, as revelation or the Christ's appearance as revelation, and then there's a historical document as it's thought to be um, that uh, describes that and the significance of that. The parallel I'm talking about is that in the development of that thought, then in Catholicism, of course, we had the um, kind of Catholic uh, apologetics and so forth that sought to reason in time about the nature of that revelation and its significance and, and so forth. So, similarly, the parallel in the East was that this body of literature, the Upanishads, was reasoned about and an attempt was made to make a concordance of that literature, that sound, those numerous sounds of the Upanishads, and make, make sense out of them. Diverse as they are, to some extent, in their message and emphasis and, and so forth, to, to tie it all together and to demonstrate, if you will, that it's all saying from different angles the same thing. There's a concerted singular, if you will, message. In other words, they attempt to theologize out of the body of revealed sound and make, from a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, some sense out of that. So this was done in the, in the East as well as in the West. And in the East, of course, that means the, the sutras, the Brahma sutras, Vedanta sutra. And the particular text that we are interested in here, gathered here tonight to discuss about the Bhagavad is a further than perhaps the furthest development of that theologizing about the nature of the Upanishadic revelation, its significance to human society, and so forth. So it's not, it's something to be reckoned with, if you will, a large body of literature that is considered to be by those who adhere to its victims and mandates and embrace its worldview to be sacred and of a different nature than ordinary literature and so forth. And, of course, while that may be a leap in faith to consider them in the same light as those who embrace them do, the example set by those who embrace them is worth considering. Here in the Upanishads, in the Sutras, and ultimately in the Bhagavatam, what we have, of course, is a discussion of the nature of consciousness. More than a historical document about an extraordinary event that happened, while that is also part of the text of the Bhagavatam in particular, the discussion about that event is centered around understanding and plumbing the depths of the nature of consciousness, which is, of course, a very relevant topic. What is consciousness is at one end of the scientific spectrum and where life comes from. It's at the other. They think they figured it out in between how it works, but those two ends are still big questions. You know, from here in Britain, you have a famous scientist, Richard Dawkins, who's had, who had a very different idea about the nature of consciousness than 
than what is presented in the Bhagwat, in, in, in the Upanishads, in the Shruti, and so forth. Or for that matter, uh, the extent to which it's discussed in um, other religious traditions. But he will admit, nonetheless, and did recently in a, in a, in a, in a public interview, that in closing the gap, as he would, and he, persons of his ilk would like to, on religion in terms of his desire to relegate it to the trash bin of, of superstition and an impediment to human progress, he admitted that the last frontier, if you will, I think there's more than that, but anyway, in his estimation, that the last frontier was understanding consciousness. And by that he meant, of course, explaining consciousness to be a material phenomenon. And that is to say that the lights are on, but there's really nobody home. It's a, an idea that is very foreign to our human intuition. And while that's acknowledged by those who would like to believe that contrary to human intuition, there is no entity there. There's no real self that's independent of, a, of any number of neutrons and firing in the brain and, and, and so forth. So at any rate, there are different ideas about consciousness and it's a very important topic. It's a very current topic of current interest in amongst thinking people. And there are innumerable theories about it. And this is one of them. The, the Bhagwat, the Shruti, the Upanishads are one of them. In fact, amongst sacred texts, we find that, the, as I'm saying, the subject of consciousness really comes to the fore in these sacred texts of the Hindus. And it's worth pointing out that if the scientific-minded turn anywhere outside of their own circles that have in recent decades to consider the question of the nature of consciousness, if anywhere they have turned to the East, to the Bhagavad, to the Upanishads, to Hinduism, to its offshoot, as it may be thought, Buddhism, and so forth. And so this is the subject, consciousness. It's a relevant subject. And it's us, is the idea. It's us. It's us whether it's an ontological reality that's independent of matter, as we would like to think, as the, as the sacred texts tell us, or it's us if it's simply neutrons firing in all for all intents and purposes because that's how we act. We may say, from a scientific, empirically based, as it's thought, conjecture, that there's no entity there and there's no will, but we don't act like that. We don't function like that. So even from an atheistic, practical point of view, then consciousness is us for all intents and purposes, whether it's us and it exists independent of matter and is bigger than the life perceived through the mind and senses, that's a metaphysical question. We don't leave without any means to, to arrive at an answer, an experiential answer, granted a first-person 
experience answer that won't satisfy the, those who insist on a third-person verifiable answer. But then again, maybe too much credit is given to the necessity for, for such, for a third-person answer. Because if we depend upon a third-person answer, I mean a, an objective verification that we exist, then we can forget about that existing. And we don't. <laughs> we act as if we exist. That's based on the first person subjective experience. We cannot prove that we exist logically or empirically. You can try that, but you can't. Uh, so we don't, we act as if we exist. That is our common sense and common experience. So, point being here, the first person experience is not as irrelevant as it might be made out to be at, at times. We function in terms of our practical life, in terms of first person experience, the experience that I exist as, a, as an entity and uh, I have choices and so forth. So, uh, we offer, anyway, the Bhagwat, the, the Shruti, the Upanishad, they offer a means by which one's intuitive sense about self, about life, for that matter, being more than what meets the eye, a sense that arises, the Shruti would tell us, in human consciousness for good reason, uh, a means by which that sense can be honed, that intuitive kind of vague sense, but nonetheless powerful sense that enables us to function as we do, that it can be verified. And the extent, indeed, to which we exist can be confirmed to the point that fear no longer exists, which is so all-pervasive in human society. We, we sense that we exist, but we don't have a means to know this extent to which we exist, or we do, but we don't apply ourselves in relation to that means, the Shruti would say. And therefore we exist, but we fear that we might not exist. We live with a threat, it appears, of non-existence based on our sense of self, which is real but distorted nonetheless. So, at any rate, point is here, first point, that these texts about consciousness are important, they're relevant, they're old, that's a fact, but they're not something that's been disproved by any means, and there are examples of those who apply themselves in relation to the, the means to experience and realize their theory, such persons exist, and they're persons worth listening to. They have, after all, theoretically stated that consciousness is independent of matter, and they have proceeded then to demonstrate that by, as far as possible, if you will, while embodied, separating themselves from matter. If I separate myself from going to the movies, some people think, how could you live? Or from watching television. Some people say, how could you live without... Or the news. How could you live? Some people will think like that. If you separate yourself from family life, People, what does it mean? You're weird. <laughs> what is the meaning of your life? What kind of life is that? It's a half a life. You have no wife, you have no husband, you have no children. People will think like that also. And as you go up the scale, if you're living in a cave, 
and you eat only what people bring to you if they bring to you, people will think, how does he live there? How does she live there? How is it possible? So these are, in a crude and a simple way, examples, my point is, of what the means to demonstrate the theory that consciousness is different from matter, uh, what the means is about, yoga, Vedanta. So th- this is about separating ourselves from matter. Gradually, as conviction and experience grows within us by doing so, and we do so in relation to a theoretical, if you will, source of consciousness that is not, that's more alive, if you will, than ourselves. The idea being of revelation, again, that if we want to know the whole, if the part wants to know the whole, it's dependent upon the whole to reveal itself to the part. If the finite wants to know the infinite, how will it be possible? To know means to control. Oh, I know that. I'm above that, it means. I've grasped it. So how will the finite know the infinite? Let's see, mathematically it's not, not possible. But if we probe a little deeper, then we can answer the question theologically that if the infinite chooses to reveal itself to the finite, then the impossible becomes possible. So we're dealing here with something with an idea of going beyond the possibilities that the finite conception of life forces us to live within. And whether we acknowledge it or not, we struggle with that. We struggle with having to live within the confines, within a world, if you will, where impossible is a word in the dictionary that we have to reckon with regularly. We sense that all things are possible, but our experience is that, to some extent, that's not the case. But why do we, Ashruti will tell us, why do we sense that all things are possible in human life? And the answer there is, is of course, that because in human life, the unit of consciousness that we are, as opposed to less complex forms of life, is beginning to feel itself. It's what we call self-identity. The idea that humans think that they exist and think about it. It's a fascinating thing, actually, that they think about it, that they exist. And we don't... The idea is we don't think, anyway, that less complex forms of life think that they exist and philosophize about it and so forth. Their thinking goes as far as to meet the basic necessities. And that's such a limited idea of thinking, human beings acknowledge, that they often don't call it thinking, right? So for a human to live only for meeting the basic necessities of life, this would not be a thinking and a rational being, as humans are said to be, and by that distinguished from the animals. If we have a reason but we reason only how to meet the demands of our senses. Who's ruling? The intellect or the senses? Hmm? And if animals are ruled by, for example, their senses rather than intellect, and we have intellect 
then ruled by the senses, then we become a very dangerous animal, a very big beast. So we are differentiated from the less complex species of life by our capacity to reason, and we reason that we exist, and we think about it, and so on and so forth. This is a wonderful time, then, to be alive. What time is that? Human time. We're living in human time. That's very extraordinary. It's that time when nature wakes up to the fact that it has a soul and thinks about it. According to the Vedanta, there is matter, there is consciousness. The meeting of the two makes the world. At a certain point, that consciousness begins to be aware of itself. And nature, then, is in effect, poetically speaking, waking up to the fact that it has a soul, that it exists. It's an extraordinary time. Hardly something to be bored with in the bit larger scheme of things, what's happening, and we are participating in that. And so then questions come that don't come in the less complex forms of life. Why questions come? Why do I exist? Questions about meaning and about purpose, questions about quality and so forth. Questions that aren't the realm of mathematics, that aren't the realm of science, but are important nonetheless, that may best be answered rather than in a descriptive language that lends itself to controlling, like mathematics, in a participatory language, like poetry. It's for poets. Bhavuka, crazy people. Bhagavad says. It is in poetic language, a participatory language. It says to us that we will understand the whole by participating in its meaning, in its scheme. It has an agenda. The part in human life wakes up to the fact that it has a meaning or purpose or that it's that there's meaning to pursue. Even if you arrive at what I would call the, the erroneous conclusion that there is no meaning, you've arrived at that by searching for meaning, isn't it? This is the meaning you've come to. There's no meaning. And you had, to, had, had to have pursued that very diligently, and very thoughtfully, researched the matter out, and to say, I don't believe there's any meaning to life. You've come to a profound sense of meaning. So we, we're in search of meaning. So the part... In search of the meaning of the whole that I'm part of. And the Shruti tells us that the answer to this question has to come from the whole. The part can arrive at the answer without the help of the whole, like the sense. Our senses are part of our body, and when they're in touch with objects, then we get experience. Only if the mind is connected to the sense and the sense to the object. Hmm. Do you understand me? Like we can all be in the room and we say, you know, we leave and we say, did you see that blue chair? And I says, I didn't see any blue chair. doesn't mean a blue chair wasn't there. And it doesn't mean your eyes didn't come across it. But your mind was somewhere else, just like when I'm talking to you. <laughs> your mind may be somewhere else. You should be careful about that. Otherwise, you won't get the experience to be mindful. So, 
the point being that the mind does not mind the sense when the sense is in touch with the sense object then we won't experience it we the experiencer consciousness experience the world through the medium of the mind which is also material but it's a subtle kind of matter it's more like consciousness and serves them as a medium through which these two communicate consciousness and matter and make up the world of our everyday interaction and so forth so the idea is with regard to revelation is that the whole must speak to the part if the part is to know the whole if the infinite out of its infinite capacity chooses to reveal itself to the finite then the finite can know and the idea of course here is that i'm alive and so i'm the part the whole is alive if we are to approach life in a poetic sense as i say in a participatory sense with the let's say the premise that the universe is alive the whole if you will is alive then if we approach on that premise then there's if it is there's a chance it may speak to us if it's not that's another thing but you'll never know without that kind of approach and so the rishis have approached with that kind of with that idea in mind and they've gotten answers they've heard that is what we call shruti that is called revelation they approached life and the whole as if it were alive and greater than themselves with the idea to participate in its meaning as the part should participate in the meaning of the whole because thereby its meaning and full utility will be realized if i take apart from this tape recorder and separate it from the tape recorder we might find something that we can do with it to give some meaning to it but nothing in comparison to if we plug it back into the tape recorder and then its full utilization is is realized so they felt themselves dorishis if you will different than less complex forms of life as units of consciousness they felt filled with potential to go beyond the sense that there were impossibilities why the theory is because as consciousness moves from less complex forms of life into the most complex form of life for example a human life it's more exposed to itself it's more uncovered and the sense that it there's no impossibilities for it comes more to the fore i mean to give you an example birds don't think why can't i go to the bottom of the ocean like those fish they found some fish mammals actually at the bottom of the ocean somewhere off the coast of australia did you read about it these species have never been seen before they live like i don't know some miles down beneath the surface and they were able to put cameras and take some pictures anyway they're fish or mammals of some kind they live on the water they don't think why can't i fly up in the sky why do we think like that we think and we've gone there with cameras to the bottom of the ocean kind of in a suit or something and then we go in the sky and fly like a bird why do we want to do things that 
all species of life can do when each species is kind of limited to one lives in the water, one lives in the sky, one walks on the earth, and so forth. We want to fly, we want to swim, we want to do everything. Because the theory is, of course, that all possibilities lie in consciousness, understanding itself. And that consciousness is coming to the fore, coming above the surface of matter. The practical shape it takes is thinking, reasoning, developing a sense that I exist. And what is the nature of existence? What are the possibilities? So we sense there are greater possibilities than what meets the eye. And we go to America to find them. Or, you know, that's what I used to think. The American dream, and you can be, you know, so, so forth. And this is just another example of that. In the universal sense, then, as they say, we, we create ships and boats and whatnot to explore these uh, all possibilities in a way that we don't quite really go there. We don't live underwater, really. We don't really live in the space. We stay in our capsule and so forth. But anyway, these are t- attempts. This is the self, consciousness, trying to be what it is. And, of course, in a way that it will never realize a world where impossible is not a word in the dictionary because the way in which we are trying to do that is by conquering nature. Again, we employ the language of science and mathematics, which has its value, but which lends itself very much to controlling. And to control the whole is to repel, is repugnant to the whole, that is repulsive to the whole. For a tiny flake of negative magnetic power or positive power, let's say. If we take a tiny magnetic positive flake and then we put it in proximity of a huge positive magnet, what will happen? The flake will be repelled, asserting itself in relation to the larger magnet is folly. It will be only repelled. But if you have the tiniest flake of a negative power, then from a distance, the flake will come so close and unite with with the whole. So the, the finite, the limited, the part, is of negative value. I don't mean negative in a negative sense, of negative value. And when it understands itself as such and positions itself in relation to the positive, the whole, then it becomes drawn in naturally. The whole is drawn to it. It is drawn to the whole. So the Rishi's approach to understanding the whole was not an approach to control the whole, but to participate in the whole as a part. And so the whole, as they perceived it, as they experienced it, spoke to them. That is the idea of revelation. It spoke to them. The world spoke to them secrets about itself. When I say participatory, to take part in, to participate in the meaning of the whole, the part has a serving role to play in relation to the whole. We're talking about, and for that matter, what is the most, the primary subject of poetry, the music, it is love. 
To fully participate means to love. It's very interesting because we fully participate with another by loving them. And they become controlled by that (laughs) in a way that otherwise would not be possible. If you love someone, it is said, what? Try it. They will tell you all your secrets. And everyone has secrets, that's a problem. But if you love someone, then they won't hold anything back from you. So if there's anyone out there, (laughs) if there's anything greater than ourselves, if the universe has any purpose or meaning, how will we find out about it? By trying to control it and conquer it and make it conform to our fragmented sense of what it means by experimenting with a small part of it here, coming up with a law, how it must be everywhere. This is <laughs> repulsive to the, to the whole. Rishis had a different idea. Yes, and then they explained life in a poetic way, and in, in, in a particular way, in a way that would encourage us to also participate in experience. It's a different type of explanation that you'll find in a science book, for example. It's a more kind of explanation. The more of life. So this is what revelation is about. It's an important concept, very relevant to our times, human times, if you will. Now the concept, of course, does get abused, no doubt. People cite the book and and turn it into something much less than what it is. The book is but an outline, if you will, one love letter from the whole about its own life, offering to share that. Then we may take it and try to make it the whole and regurgitate it to, to attract other people to ourselves, try to make it part of our own agenda of being bigger than we are, and turn it into a book of rules and dogma and so forth. And people who sense that life is about freedom will be repulsed by that. And we wonder why. We were drawn in for a different reason, not to follow some rule, but by hearts force, by affections force. We misunderstand the rules of the texts. We don't understand their purpose. There are no rules to love. That's a fact. Where there is love, there are no rules. Where there are rules, there is no love. Therefore, in a sacred text, for example, of Hindi, we find from karma to bhakti. What do we find as the significant difference? Karma is rule-laden, rule-heavy, and bhakti is in its highest reach. Aprakrita bhakti, the brajalok, golok, is rule-absent, as you will. It is, it is knowledge absent. <laughs> what is big rule? Gyan shunya bhakti. Gyan shunya bhakti. Bhakti unencumbered by, by even the knowing that Krishna, for example, is God. That's a burden that gets in the way of the heart's exchange that creates a difference between object of love and love. The Braja Bhakti is about becoming a receptacle of love And that love is none different than Krishna. Love of Krishna and Krishna are one. 
and different. Atyantya Veda Veda. The love of Radha for Krishna is Krishna. The heart, the embodiment of love that, of, of Radha has a corresponding objective reality that we call Swayam Bhagwan. You can't have one without the other. It's like the seed and the tree. Radha's love is Krishna. Radha's love is the full answer of the whole to the parts inquiry. How can I participate and be all that I can be? It comes in the form of Krishna. This is the meaning. Swam Bhagwan. And depicted, experienced and depicted by the Rishis. As flute playing, color sham, the color of romantic love, as it's understood in Indian aesthetics of Bharat, Muni and the like. The flute, if he has an instrument, the flute is considered the, the voice is the perfect instrument. And next comes and the flute just a little voice, something like that. The whole description of Krishna, if you understand it, youth, kaishor, yovana. So, speaking about the nature of the Absolute and value, youth, its value. It's, it, everyone wants the youth. The military wants the youth. The corporate world, the educational world, the parents want to keep the youth youthful. <laughs> At home, don't grow up, don't let them grow up. My son, my baby, <laughs> always seeing in that light. But the value of youth and the importance of using it wisely. Youth is intoxicating, but if it's used wisely, then so valuable. Krishna's youth, he's fully intoxicated, but wise, the wise love nonetheless. So you study the experience, the vision, the darshan, the samadhi, basha of Srimad Bhagavat, of Vyas, it comes to the description of Krishna. Samadhinanusmaratadvicheshtitam. Under the, the guidance of Nard, he sat in Samadhi, and the Bhashya came. This is the language of Bhagavat. Nirgranta. Nirgrantapi urukrama. Atmanamas chunayo. Nirgrantapi urukrama. The question comes in the Bhagavat itself. Why the boy Sukadev? who was near Grantha, the knot of material life he had untied. And Grantha means book also. Why the one who had no need for the Grantha, for the knot of material life, and no need for a book? Why he studied the Bhagavat? Because it is near Grantha. It is the Samadhi Bhasha. Samadhi means that realm of experience that where thought cannot reach that words cannot do justice to. But going there and coming back, one is compelled to think about that, only to speak about that as far as possible. And the Vaishnava will think, I cannot say enough about that. I cannot say enough. And it will come out some kind of mumbo-jumbo, as they will think, some poetic old book full of stories and myths and impossibilities and, and so forth. This is a love note only, the Bhagavad. It takes, therefore, a certain kind of person to understand that language of love. If two people love one another, they have their own language. They have their own way of communicating. She looks at him and he knows. I've got to do something. Nobody else. She looks at him. Okay. Okay. Got to go now. 
written, and they have their own names for one another, and their own it has all nuances. And if you can't enter that, then you cannot understand that language. Love has a language of its own. Love seeks to express itself everywhere, but it quickly realizes not everyone can understand this. It kind of keeps to itself. It camouflages itself. It develops a secret language. That is what we find in Srimad Bhagavatam. Therefore, Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. And Bhagavati Uttama Shlokya. Bhakti Bhagavati Nashtuki. Nastaprayeshu Abhadreshu. It is an auspicious book. It will dispel all Abhadra, all inauspiciousness, by giving good close attention to that. How would we give close attention to that? Bhagavat Sevaya. It means to serve the Bhagavat. And there is a person that personifies that, a lover, a bhavuka, a rasika, bhuvi bhavuka, rasika, nigamakopadurogalitamphala, who came to the tree of the Veda, smart person, took fruit, galitamphalam, galitam, it's on the ground, has already fallen, it's ripe. You don't have to struggle. <laughs> Bhakti is so natural. You don't just climb the tree of the Veda with so many branches of knowledge. Get lost there. It's struggling to pick the fruit. The Bhagavad Galitam Palam. The ripe fruit falls on the ground. You just come and pick it up. So easy. Bhakti so user friendly. Nigamakopataro. From the Kalpataro, the desire tree of knowledge, the fruit of the Bhagavat, which is the love of Radha Govinda, has come on the ground to us. And how has it come to us? If we are to speak about the Bhagavat, we are speaking in general about revelation. If we are going to the Upanishad, and as I said, this Eastern revelation, and the theologizing about that in the form of the sutras, we ultimately come to the Bhagavat, the last work, the mature work of Vyas, his Samadhi Bhasha, if we are to speak in some detail in the direction that we're going about the Bhagavat per se, we'll have to stop for a moment and preface that. With what? With what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has said about the Bhagavat. The very name Chaitanya means consciousness. And his name was Krishna Chaitanya. Krishna Chaitanya. Krishna Chaitanya means plumbing the depths of consciousness to understand the consciousness of consciousness. Shankar wanted to understand consciousness, but he, he only went so far in his explanation. He talked about pure subjectivity, kind of a Berkeleyan idea. Pure subjectivity, the object of world, had no existence for him. Not a very satisfying explanation for those who live in the objective world, that it doesn't exist. Ramanuja thought to modify that and say, what is the meaning of a subjective existence with no object? Giving more meaning to the world. But Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his followers, following those leads, giant speakers, if you will, on the eastern horizon, about it's such an important subject as we're discussing, the nature of consciousness, sought to go further, to plumb the depths of that. They wanted to understand the consciousness of consciousness. Krishna Chaitanya means that. Radha Krishna Pranay Vikutiladini Shakti Rasmat Radha Krishna Pranay 
Ekatmanovapi bubi puradeham gurukatvedogatoto. The one becoming two eternally. Radha Krishna Pram. The two becoming one again. Moments in eternity. Why shall we turn to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu if we are to speak about the Bhagavatam? Why shall we preface the discussion of the Bhagavatam with some pranam and uh, thought about the contribution of Chaitanya Because the deeper you go into the Bhagavatam, into its deepest recess there, we come to the tenth book in the story of Krishna. Here the Ashrai Tattva is being described full in full. He's been touched upon here and there. But primarily the Ashrita, that which is sheltered by him, which is under the shelter of the whole, has been discussed in relation to the shelter. The tenth book is the shelter itself. Bhagwan, Sri Krishna, and in his life, love life, the romantic life of the Absolute, the source of consciousness, the center, the fire of which we are a spark, and we have a life. What kind of that must have life also? Must have an agenda. It's not a dead thing that we can rest in, in, in the, the fist of our of our intellect. It has an agenda of its own. Therefore, again, we have to open ourselves up to be hear its agenda and be willing to be on its agenda, to know it and to know the full meaning of ourselves. So it has a life. This Bhagavad is exploring the life. Of, of the heart of the, the fire of consciousness that we are a spark. And it's a, it's a driven life and, and Shakti is the driving force. For us, the Shakti the Goswamis went to these Upanishadic aphorisms speaking about Shakti and they said the whole, everything hinges on this. Being exists is a tautology, but nonetheless, <laughs> it has to be considered. Being exists. So being has a power to exist, to make itself known. This is called shakti. This is one with the, and different from at the same time. Pedaved achintya. This is the metaphysics of the Gaudias. So in that tenth book, then, in the Samadhi Bhasha, Vyasa is reaching the, the zenith of his, the acme of his discussion about consciousness. And he plays out then with his pen from Badrik Ashram on the banks of the Saraswati in the Himalaya. He plays out the Leela of Bhagwan. He does a tightrope walk between Aishwarya Madhurya, the divinity of Krishna, the humanness of Krishna. He's completely divine. He's completely human. He knows everything. He's forgotten himself. He's abhigna, swarat, all-knowing and fully independent. And he's being written about there as being unknown, uh, unknowing. He doesn't know his own godhood. And he's not independent, controlled by the shakti, that Radha personifies, captured completely by that. So this is the discussion then as to the nature of the consciousness of consciousness. 
what makes Krishna tick, in other words, what, what animates his being. Brahman is the absolute where Shakti is not prominent. Therefore, it's still, if we go up the scale, the Shakti becomes more prominent. So, Brahman becomes more animate in Vaikuntha, as Narayan, as Ram, more animate still. As Krishna, then. Mahavishnu is sleeping most of the time. Krishna never sleeping. He only pretends to go to sleep. And then he's out the window. So what kind of shakti is there? What kind of love is there? Animating Bhagavan. He cannot sleep. He cannot rest. <laughs> A moment. His walk is dancing. His talk is song. How animated. What must be the song then? What must be the dance in that place? This kind of bhakti, this is the subject of Bhagavatam. This analysis of the nature of consciousness and being, this is what Bhagavatam is focused on. And why then shall we speak about Chaitanya? Because as I said, if we go to the, to the acme of the Bhagavatam, the discussion of the life, a day in the life, if you will, of the Absolute, a day in the life of the heart of Brahman expressing itself. We come to this Raspancha Jaya, this Raslila. And there, what do we find? This is the height. Bhagavatam builds up in its discussion of Krishna Lila to the point where the Radha and Krishna's love is confirmed. It's consummated in the Raslila. Bhagavatam goes on for many chapters, but if we study those chapters carefully, we see they are all but a reflection back on the Brajlila and its significance, the kind of bhakti that we find there that so much animates the Absolute that he can't sleep at night, as I say. It's all reflecting back on that Brajlila and that Brajlila culminates in this love union of Radha Govinda. So if we look there, deep in the Bhagavatam, what do we find? Napareyaham niravadyasam jutam. What do we find there? Krishna is the king of love. That is his identity. Rasaraj. What do we find? Rasaraj has an ex existential crisis. He thinks, I'm the king of love. But here I see, in the person of Radha, a love that exceeds anything in my experience. Am I the king of love? This is a love I don't have control of, I don't have experience of. It's greater than me. I've said that Jitamam Prapadjante Tam Sataiva Bajamiham Mamabartmanumartante Manusha Parthasaras. I've said as people approach me, I will reciprocate accordingly. I'm in trouble here. I cannot reciprocate in proportion to the measure of the love that I see embodied in her. What to do? This is a crisis for Bhagavan, an existential crisis. That crisis, this is the heart, the zenith of the Bhagavat. And what is the answer to that? That is Krishna Chaitanya. That is the birth of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. He is born in the Bhagavatam. This is the Janma of Sachinandana. In the heart of the heart of the Bhagavatam, this is the genesis, this is the eternal source, if you will, 
This is therefore not an ordinary birth. Satchinandana Gaudhari. So that birth on earth, that is to tell us about the heart of Bhagavatam. So if we are to discuss Bhagavatam, how can we avoid discussing Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? We have to give deference to Gaur if we are to really speak about and understand, have access to Sham, to Krishna. Srimad Mahaprabhu embraced Srimad Bhagavatam as his own heart. We find that, as I said, the Bhagavat is written in Himalaya on the bank of the Saraswati. It is about Krishna, the life of Krishna. That Saraswati has manifestation in Nadia at the Bay of Bengal where the rivers that originated in the Himalayas have their finality. All their experience they take with them and give to the ocean. There is the Jalangi is said to be representation of the Saraswati. And there on the banks of the Jalangi also is written Chaitanya Bhagavat, the life of Chaitanya. The author, Vrindabandas, the Bhyas of Gaurlila. The Bhagavad is, I mean to say by this, it's not a static book. Yes, it's described 18,000 slokas, 12 books, so on and so forth. But again, it is the Samadhi Bhasha of, of Vyas. So that much more can be written about that. Krishna Chaitanya was his name. So Krishna consciousness, it means, that's what it means. Full consciousness of Krishna. This was his name. From him we shall know something about the significance of Bhagavatam. And you can go, for example, to Vrindavan. If you want to hear a discourse on Bhagavatam, it doesn't matter. Whatever Sampradaya is giving discourse on Bhagavatam, they will be citing the commentary of Jiva Goswami, Sanatana Goswami, Vishwana Chakravati Thakur. These are all Gaudiyas, followers of Chaitanya. They may give a discourse next day on something else, but if they give a discourse on Bhagavat, they'll think, the Gaudiya people, we draw from them, we can get the most from them. After all, flattery does go a long way, actually. So, the Gaudiyas are very flattering when they say, Krishna's too Bhagavan Swayam. People will think of it like that. It's true, not mere flattery, but people think it's a little over the top. Krishna's too, Bhagavan's way. Narayan comes from Krishna? They'll think. Of course, we can support that well. But in another sense, to know him is to love him. It's a statement of love. Krishna is everything. All you can find in Narayan is found in Krishna. In other words, nobody glorifies Krishna. Nobody says more flattering things about Krishna than the Gaudiya people. Because they know him. <laughs> Because they love him, they say those things. They are an interpretation of the text. It's saturated with their with their sentiment, their love. And as I said before, if you love someone, then they will tell you all their secrets. All the secrets of the Bhagavat are coming from Gaudiya Sampradaya. And what is Bhagavat in the world of Revelation? If Revelation is important, as we've talked about, in the greater scheme of things, we have the Western Revelation of the... Christ in the Bible and Quran and such things and all the New Testament. We have the Upanishads centered on consciousness, as I said, not merely historical documents. Even to the extent that they are historical documents, they are a history of the life of the Absolute that beyond time and space 
can't even go and demonstrate that Krishna appeared 5,000 years ago and he stood here and walked there and so forth. And Christians are fond of making the idea Christ is a historical event in human society that's happened. Therefore, it has meaning. We say it, it may not have happened in human society. It still has meaning. <laughs> what about that? It happened in human society. It didn't happen in human society. How is it? Because it is governed by the Surup Shakti, his appearance. Therefore, Janma Karma Chone Dibyam Evam Noveti Tatvata Chakvade Hampunar Janma Naiti Mameti. So, Arjuna, if you understand it, then you understand what is the world within the confines of birth and death. This event chronicled in the Bhagavatam is another history altogether, not of this world, but of relevance to the world, of, of significance to the world. So Chaitanya, his sect, we'll turn there to understand Bhagavat and what is Bhagavat, as I say, in the larger scheme of, of revelation. Oh, well, you decide, what are the Upanishads compared to the Bible? You make a thoughtful examination. Everything has its value, no doubt, but everything is not equal either. In the Upanishads we find such nice explanation of consciousness and a means for experiencing that explanation. So relevant, isn't it? To the times in which we live, as I say, human times and, and the need to understand consciousness, as Dawkins put it, the last gap to bridge to demonstrate that there's nothing but matter. So how far are they from doing that? I heard a, an, another professor of science of mind, study of consciousness, secular school of thought, explaining, he said, that I think that the way that science is going, the rate at which science is developing, within a thousand years, we will be able to explain consciousness perfectly. Now you please try to consider the rate at which science is developing. For a couple hundred years, it developed at a certain rate. Now it's developing exponentially, isn't it? So 10 years of scientific development is like 100 years of scientific development in the past. There's so much more insight about, so much more understanding of nature and so forth. Take a thousand years of that. It means what he was really saying without realizing it is we know nothing about consciousness. His guess is that in a thousand years, scientific study we'll be able to understand it means you don't know anything about it so many theories they are all conjectures honest people will admit as such they may have some empiric basis but they fly in the face of our experience so anyway consciousness as I say it's a relevant topic it's important this is the subject of this Upanishads then to go deeper within that as I say we come to the Bhagavatam the crown jewel Grantaraj where the depths of consciousness are plumbed more deeply than any one has done to this date. That is Bhagavatam. This the Gaudiya people are centered on, our sect. And Sri Chaitanya, he embraced the Bhagavad like his own heart. All of the books of the Gaudiyas in their sect, all are different explanations of the Bhagavatam in one way or another. That's what they are. We explain the Gita in light of the Bhagavatam. Any Upanishad, any Purana, this is the hub. Where the wheel of revelation moves around. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has shown great deference to Bhagavatam. The teaching to Sanatana we find in 
Chaitanya Charitamrita. He said, all based on Bhagavatam. Teaching to Sri Rupa, all based on the Bhagavatam. To the scholar Sarvabhoma, he highlighted the Bhagavat. This should be understood at the expense even of understanding any other book and there will be no loss. So deference to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and his followers that is most appropriate in any discussion of Srimad Bhagavatam. We offer our respect to him, Sri Chaitanya Dev. And in our next talk, we'll say something more about the Bhagavat itself. Any questions? Any comments? Any help? You are to participate, as I said in all. Vodayanta parasparam tushanticha ramanticha. Yes? Good question. Interesting. You have to think a little bit, what is your body made out of now? Constituted of matter. And so that form, in one sense, is your cell and your sentence. At the same time, in Gaudiya tradition, then when we enter the stream of the flow of, of bhakti coming through the parampara, we become a card-carrying member. We receive the dubhyagyan diksha from the guru. Then we live in this body within certain parameters. Our body is a product of karma, and karma is our debt that we owe. And our debt is overwhelming. It's like if you have credit cards, but you max out the credit card, then you only have, your life constitutes working to pay your debts. You don't have the freedom to go to the movies. You have to give all the money to pay the visa card. So our karmic situation is something like that. We're in debt over our head. So we don't have a life of our own. We're almost living a, a deterministic life. Free will is so much infringed upon by the choices that we've made that practically we have no choice. This is the karmic reality. Even while we're thinking, we have so many choices to make. We're so much informed by choices we've already made. The sanskaras we've developed, the tendencies we've developed from acting in previous situations. So we're really in over our head. So in the world of debt, materially speaking, at least in the United States, they have laws for bankruptcy so that one can declare bankruptcy and then can come under the rule of the court. And the court uh, deals with the debtors, the creditors, and negotiates with them. And you get a life. You have to pay something, but you get to go to the movies sometimes, too. You get to go out to eat sometimes, too. You start to get a life back. You have to pay something. But this negotiation is going on. So this idea of Guru Parampara, we come under the Guru, there is negotiation then. Come to the court appointed person. Everyone owes Krishna, all the devas, to what extent you are implicated in debt to the devas. Now you're in touch with someone that they owe money to, so you have to back off a little bit. So you start to get a life. Now that life that you are, that you have, that is the life of the bhakti. You have now freedom to participate in bhakti. 
And to the extent that you do, and you live within the parameters given by the court or by the guru, then you're not creating karma. So what are you doing? You're still functioning in the same body. So therefore, the, the sadhaka day of the body that you have is no longer entirely a material body, neither it's entirely a spiritual body. We call it a sadhaka deha. Deha means body. Sadhaka. Sadhaka means practitioner. A practitioner's body. And the practice is bhakti. So bhakti in practice is called sadhana bhakti. It's a form of bhakti. It's like an unripe form of bhakti. Like if you have a ripe mango and an unripe mango. It's still a mango. One is green, one is gold. And then you become in a special category. That body, that sadhakadeya, that has enduring meaning. That's why when one perfects their sadhakadeha, their practitioner's body, by developing prem-bhakti, bhav-bhakti and prem-bhakti, the mature fruit of bhakti, by churning sadhana-bhakti into prem-bhakti, into bhav-bhakti and into prem-bhakti, then that sadhaka-deha, you've used your practitioner's body appropriately. And all that you've been doing with it is not in the realm of karma, so it's not further causing you to incur debt. All those activities are of an eternal nature. So that sadhaka-deha, if you will, is a materially kind of transformed body that has enduring meaning and significance. And that's why, as I say, one who has perfected their sadhaka deo, what do we do with that? We create what's called the samadhi. The sadhu, the saint, is put in samadhi. means he entered samadhi, then we take the body and we entomb the body, and then it becomes a place of worship, isn't it? So we're not simply worshipping material bodies. The teaching is, one who thinks the material body is worshipable, he has a mind like an ass or an animal, Pashu Buddhi, only animal intelligence who thinks that the body is worshipable. And here we are worshipping the body of the sadhu. So that's not, you have to think a little bit now, that's not a material body, but it's but it looks material. I mean, got old, right? So the nature of spirit, the nature of bhakti, the nature of swarup shakti, the internal shakti of Krishna as opposed to his external shakti, it's a big topic. It's a little difficult to understand. Like my Guru Maharaj, we worship the form of our Guru, even he's passed away. So it has a place in eternity, doesn't it? Somehow it's existing eternally. And that body, that sadhakadeya in Gaudiya lineage, what is that? That body is a body for functioning in the, what might be termed the extension of Gaur-lila, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's lila, which is the distribution of the message of Bhagavata, the relishing of that. Chaitanya lila, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has his eternal realm, if you will, is called Sadhana Siddha Bhumi. Bhumi, the land where there are many Siddhas acting like sadhakas. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was performing kirtan, worshipping Radha and Govinda, and so forth. 
They're all at the house of Srivast doing kirtan. They're all siddhas, but they're acting like sadhakas. Such is the nature of the realm. So that perfected sadhaka deya has a place in Gorlila. So in some life, you had a sadguru and you perfect your own sadhaka deya. That body will have eternal currency in Gorlila, like a youthful form of that. Something like that. It's like the body of Rup Sanatana Goswami. It's represented there in Gorlila, like young Brahman boys. So that possibility is there. But that is one thing. Then there's the internal Siddhadeha. Also the body that develops in the course of practice. It's not a result of the practice because it's also eternally existing. It's not a product in time. So there's an internal body. As you perfect your body for participating in Gaur-lila, what is Gaur-lila but participation in, in Krishna-lila? You cannot separate Gaur from Krishna. That's not possible. So in Gaur-lila, there's only consciousness of Krishna. So Mahaprabhu is chanting and going into Krishna-lila and coming back out and going... Hmm? So you have to have a body for that, for Krishna-lila. Now, that is called... There is the perfected sadhaka-deha and then there is the siddha-deha. Siddha-deha means in the course of one sadhana, one will develop an affinity for Krishna in a particular way. Like to like Krishna as a friend or as a lover, a gopa, a gopi. You understand? We'll develop an affinity for that. Usually relative to the guru whom you are initiated by. Generally, not always, but generally we will imbibe the same bhava. So in higher stages of sadhana, in ruchi and asakti, this body starts to form internally. And when one enters into bhava bhakti, this internal identity in Krishna and Leela is cultivated because it's constituted of bhava. So you have to have bhava to, to cultivate bhava. <laughs> In Bhava Bhakti, this sense of identity. Krishna is coming to you in a particular way. It corresponds with a certain a dominant disposition and temperament like a friend or like a lover, something like that. So a body constituted of Bhava, internal body is formed. And Bhava Bhakti, as a stage in pursuance of perfection, is the stepping into that body and coming out and stepping into it until one can step into it entirely. And the bhava, which is a ray of prema, has been churned such that you you fit into the clothes of that body, that the shoes of that body, and you can participate fully in the leelas. That is another form of spiritual body. One is imbued with the bhava, the sadhaka-deha, and it becomes a bhava-deha also, a bhava-deha. In Gorli, the other internal leela for Krishna, that is another kind of bhavadeya. One will have more correspondence, perhaps, but it's possible with the form that one has as a sadhaka. The other will have a different, because Gorlila is, and Krishna leela is, there are some differences. While they're the same, they're constituted of the same essence or content of bhava, they express themselves differently. So two bodies, possible. That bhava of a gopi or a gopa that we call siddhadeha is constituted of that particular bhava. So you're trying to figure out what does that mean? What is bhava? How does it take a shape and so forth? 
Well, it's something like this. If, if you consciousness expresses itself in relation to matter, matter will take a shape around it, right? That's what we've got. We've expressed ourselves in relation to matter, and matter has taken a has taken a form, so to speak. When consciousness turns onto itself rather than onto matter, the result will also be a form, a shape. It has a shape in order to express itself. Art requires a pen and a canvas in order to express itself and to be meaningful. So, bhava deha. Does that help? Kind of. It's a big topic. Keep chanting. It's a little complicated, but the, the self is really chitkana. It's a particle of consciousness. So unto itself, if matter is removed, the covering of matter, then it exists eternally. It can experience Brahmananda, the bliss of Brahman, and Brahmagyan, the knowledge of Brahman. But bhakti is a gift, actually. So if you uncover the soul from matter, you have sat, chit, you have ananda, a very small form, but you don't have sandini, samvit, ladini, which is super-existence, sandini, samvit, super-knowledge, and ladini, kind of super-bliss that, that governs the realm of Krishna Leela. So to ascend there requires the ingress into the self of Swarup Shakti. This comes through Guru Parampara and, and Bhakti is constituted Swarup Shakti. So when we avail ourselves to Bhakti, when we take advantage of Bhakti's generosity and so forth, then that possibility of participating in that Leela takes place. Otherwise, the Atma, without Bhakti, without Bhava, it's more or less a witness. It's more or less a witness. It's pretty sober. It's blissful only in that it's witnessing the fact that it's not part of the nightmare of material life. When it's awake, it witnesses, huh, I'm not part of that nightmare. Whew, that's blissful. It's a relief. But with the ingress of bhakti, then it can dance. Yes, and it can cry, and so many things. All possible. Then it has a full life. It's no longer a witness, sitting still. It becomes animated. It's like Bhagwan becomes animated, as we said, by his shakti. Another question? So, again, thank you all for coming, and hope to meet you again someday. Hare Krishna.